PR Darlings, a podcast all about the dark arts of public relations, publicity and all things media. I mean, storytelling is at the core of the Spell brand and it has been since before it even began. Join us to learn more about the world of PR and how it can help build your business. So they decided we're going to create our own editorials, which is like why they started creating content in a way that I think was a bit of a pioneer in the direct-to-consumer online market. And if you're just starting your PR career, then come along for the ride. We're speaking to all kinds of journalists, producers and industry professionals. Content is everything, storytelling is everything to us as a brand. What they create that we're able to repost is just as important as the reach that they have. I'm Greer Quinn from Forward Communications. Also supply chain and making sure that you can source all those things. Totally, Um, and like obviously at that point in time because um, COVID had started, we didn't know if they were going to shut down, we weren't going to be able to deliver and we'd already donated all the money. And I'm Jo Stone from Sticks and Stones PR and together we are your PR darlings. Thank you. I loved hearing all that too because, like I said, I'm always watching you going, you're amazing. And Thank you so much. I'm not going to be able to get out of the room with my head being this big after you guys. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much. Welcome to It's PR Darlings. I'm Jo Stone from Sticks and Stones PR. And I'm Greg Quinn from Forward Communications. And together, we're your PR darlings. We're in the swing of things now that we're into our second season, so we're diving straight into today's jargon gem, which is collaboration. Or collab, as it's sometimes called. And we're also dishing up the goods with today's guest. Any fashion fans will know the Byron Bayborn breezy bohemian brand Spell Designs, and perhaps you're even lucky to have one or ten of their pieces. I think I might fit closer into the ten category. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we have a treat in store today because we love taking you behind the scenes on the storytelling process. We're going to be chatting to Spell Designs Marketing Manager and all-round extraordinaire Mel Carrero. She's the hardworking creative who's responsible for bringing so many of Spell's collections to life. From creating connective blog content to photographing the world's most influential influencers, Mel is the ultimate multitasker. Welcome to the show, Mel. First of all, can you tell us a little bit about your role? Your email signature says marketing manager, but you seem to wear so many hats. Can you tell us what you actually do at Spell Designs? This is such a hard question. <laughs> I get asked this all the time and even when we have like a newcomer, usually like the HR person takes around and goes, Mel is a, uh," and they're like, never really know exactly how to (laughs) encompass how to say what I do. I don't think anybody actually knows, neither do I. No, uh, okay, so obviously I'm the marketing manager and I see, oversee all of the marketing that goes on at Spell alongside our chief brand officer and co-founder Elizabeth Abeg. And really, I guess... The core of the role is to just make sure that everything that we do uh, externally with the brand is sort of succinct or exciting, Um, but that really is the PR, the social media, the content creation and campaign production and managing the team who help bring that all together, I guess would be like the shortest way to say it. And what's your favourite part? What's the (laughs) favourite? Also a hard question. Um... I definitely lean towards the campaign, like shoot campaign production and like sort of bringing the collections to life as one of the favourite things and then the PR element as well and like developing and um, holding relationships for the brand is a big one as well. And then over like the last sort of year and a half, I've also been a little bit more involved in the design process, which is really awesome and not actually designing, but I get to sort of put my two cents in about the way things are designed. I I love, Mel, that you are actually such a doer in your marketing role. You're not just outsourcing to a heap of agencies, but I see that sometimes you are actually behind the lens and even doing videography. And can you talk us through your process and how you use storytelling in words, pictures, video to bring social media and those other digital campaigns to life? You do it so brilliantly. Oh, I mean, storytelling is at the core of the Spell brand and it has been since before it even began because the brand was founded by sisters and if you don't know the story, they grew up scrapbooking together and creating together and then sort of 
went their separate ways, travelling, working, and then sort of came back together at the beginnings of the business. And Elizabeth, who is the person I work closest with, the chief brand officer, was a video video editor before um, she came to Spelt. So her life was storytelling. So um, I actually studied video editing at uni, funnily enough. So I had kind of had come from a similar background to her and had been blogging and doing that kind of thing. So really like her and I together are very much storytellers, which is I guess how we look at every single piece of content that we create or put out there and really try and tell a story about all of the the garments that we make and the collections that we create and each of them have their own little personality, I guess. So it sort of feels quite exciting even though I've been here for six years to release any collection because it has its own little um, identity within the brand. How do you choose those identities? They come from so many sources of inspiration. So sometimes like it's really a directive from the design team and where they started when they were designing a collection and then other times it can come from something that Lizzie or I see in the collections as well. So it really it changes every single time that we're going through a collection of where this story comes from. Mm, do you have a favourite campaign that you've worked on, something that you really loved? Oh, <laughs> that's like choosing between children. <laughs> um, you can do it, you know. <laughs> there may be one coming up that we um, just recently shot in Tenterfield, which is about three hours west of Byron Bay. We um, did a campaign, which I can't name the collection or anything yet, but that'll come out in a few months, that was just really special and felt like very, I guess, what people would say is like old school spell. So that could be one of them. But um, from end to end... I think like we we did a shoot at the end of 2019. Sorry, we shot it in September of 2019 and released in November, which was called Seashell uh, and it was fronted by Isabel Lucas. That would probably be a favourite of mine in a way like because it had been a goal of the owners to shoot with her and that location had been something that we'd been waiting um, to use for years and years. So it kind of felt like a nice full circle moment to like tick that campaign off. I don't know like if it would be like my absolute favourite from end to end, like it's hard to say. A lot of my favourite campaigns are actually the ones that I wasn't even present for, which is strange because I don't know if like being there changes what you see, if that makes sense. Totally, because some of these locations are overseas and in exotic places, so bringing it back home to Tenterfield is probably a sign of the times um, with not being able to do as many big blockbuster international trips, perhaps. Yeah, that's right. We used to shoot overseas a lot and a lot of the time the Australian campaigns were more logistically hard, which seems preposterous like people go why don't you shoot more in Australia it's like actually sometimes it's more expensive to get like people over to a regional place like within Australia and how many crew you actually have to fly into there whereas like when you're in um, Europe or the States usually we'll find like you know a portion of the crew like a good portion of the crew would be people who live there Um, but sometimes when you're in a more remote area, those jobs don't exist. So sometimes they do, sometimes they don't, but we obviously like to use our core crew and the people that we trust the most. Um, I'm currently producing some shoots in Tasmania, which I was uh, telling you ladies about before we hopped on and it is a logistical nightmare. So, um, yeah, sometimes that's harder. So I, I don't know if I would say that it's easier doing it in Australia necessarily. Yeah, because so we, we have such distances from A to B here that they don't have as much. If, you, if you're shooting in Paris, everything's at your fingertips. You don't have to do as much distance travel. No, yeah, you literally point the camera another direction and there's another shot. <laughs> That's right. So do you, have, do you have any tips for us then? Because there are so many moving parts when you're creating these launches and events. Do you have like a checklist that you have that you can share with us about before you do a campaign drop? You know, do you you really think about how many social media posts and how it's all going to fit together? It's not quite that granular, but we do have a campaign um, checklist. So that's something that like a lot of the marketing team sort of help run while I'm like looking at the overarching stuff. So um it's literally like, okay, when do we need to send our postcards to print? Because we send out like a little postcard with our orders. When, like, you know, how far in advance would a campaign need to be shot in order to get the images so the graphic design team have enough time to turn around every product image, get the home pages sort of done and conceptualized. 
there's yeah lots of moving parts with that so we we sort of have like a framework it's taken a long time to get like when I first started there'd be shoots that'd be happening like a month before we launch a campaign it's just not ideal for the graphic design team and sending anything to print and all of that so really as a rule of thumb we try and shoot three to six months before a collection comes out is ideal for us. But, I mean, heaps of brands don't do it that far out. It's just we have so many moving parts and then another collection that comes out, say, four weeks later. So we just sort of try and do it as far in advance to help ease the other stuff because really that's like a small portion of the rest of the marketing that we do. Planning is always good. Um, Now, the spell photo shoots and videos have become iconic and I can see the background in filmmaking there. Some of these really are like short films. They are just mesmerising, so captivating. How much planning goes into these? I mean, you said sometimes three to six months. How many people are on the team? And you did mention you had some favourite collaborators. Um, How flexible are you in terms of bringing in new talent as well? Um, so when I say three to six months out, that's three to six months out from the collection launch that we would get the images or we'd shoot the images. It's definitely not three to six months of planning the actual shoot. So like right now when I'm talking about Tasmania, I have three shoots and I lead one Monday. Um, today is a, what are we on? A Thursday? No, Wednesday. Today is Wednesday. So less than a week I leave. The first two shoots are organised and locations locked in. However, the third shoot is not locked in really at all. So the organisation leading up to the shoot is definitely not months in advance and it never has been. It's sort of impossible to do because literally I was in Tenterfield um, less than a month ago doing that shoot and then when I got back I had the weekend and I had another shoot. So it's kind of like I had to come back and hit the ground running straight into this. So I don't really have that much time to organise it. (laughs) Um, So the planning is a hard one to say. Like sometimes, like for example, um, if we're thinking about like a video that might feel quite narrative-based, so um, Starcross Lovers, for example, which came out in November last year, we did a Romeo and Juliet-themed video and campaign shoot we definitely had more time to plan and conceptualise that because it was the first shoot we got to do out of COVID. (laughs) So it was like the beacon of hope while we were all in lockdown of like, okay, this is the shoot we're going to do and this is the idea around it. So I definitely had more time to think than I ever have had about conceptualising how that video would roll. Uh, But other times it's just like the magic of the crew on set and, yes, we have like a story behind the collection and and what we want to do, but it won't be like planned to the to every little fine detail until you're there, if that makes sense. Beautiful, yeah. As they say, best laid plans, you know, how do you come back from something that's gone pear-shaped? Is there anything that you've been really proud of? You thought, oh, we're going to shoot it this way and then something's happened and you've had to rethink it on your feet on the day? Uh, I've been really lucky that there hasn't been any issues. Touch wood. (laughs) Don't let me say this next (laughs) week after Tasmania. But there hasn't really been any um, major issues on the shoots that I've been on, even like literally one of our shoots we did in um, Italy, which I've talked about um, before on the Spell podcast. It was like literally probably my busiest time at Spell. I'm feeling like right now is coming in a close second or third. But um, we had like a week where... We had a lookbook shoot, which is what we shoot six months in advance of a um, collection coming out of seven months for our wholesale accounts. So we do like a local studio shoot, which is where we will use like the pictures for our e-commerce, but they'll also see it to buy in advance. And so we had like one of those shoots during this week and then we had a two-day press event up in Byron where we flew like Sydney Media and Influences in Byron, which was two days of like activities and events. And that ended on the Friday and I flew to Europe on the Friday night. So I hadn't even booked our accommodation for our second shoot in Florence (laughs) by the time I was getting on my flight. It was, like, actually crazy, but I just happened to find, like, a local producer who was able to help and, like, get everything tied away for us. So that's, like, super important when you're doing that. But I guess, like, an answer to the question, nothing really gone pear-shaped. I would say, like, the shoot that I was like least prepared for would be like something that was released uh, maybe three years ago now, which was called Oasis. We shot it in Palm Springs and we really just like winged it shooting in Palm Springs. We had one location set and the rest was sort of really loose, but ended up turning out really well. So got lucky there. 
I, oh, I so really, good. yeah, I really like the way that Spell um, from the outset, instead of, I guess, facing too closely towards media, really dedicated themselves to creating almost their own channel through Instagram and, um, well, mostly Instagram, but also your EDMs and your blog posts so that you weren't as dependent on PR. But do you, you still also deal with mainstream media? I see that the girls are often in um, or the sisters are often in business awards and um, other PR activities. How big is your mainstream media PR focus or are you still really mostly grounded in that social media presence and creating your own media channel? I would say that the focus is primarily on our own media channel and that came out of necessity because, I mean, even to this day, I would say the, you know, placements in magazines and stuff don't come that often for Spell. Like we don't get placed in editorials. I'm not sure, like it happens every now and then and we have some great relationships with media, but I'm not sure if because we're not that high end in people's minds (laughs) that we don't necessarily get those placements. But, yes, there are features on us as a brand, but not so much us, like, being featured in editorials. And that was always, like, something that um, both Lizzie and Spelly really loved and admired. So they decided we're going to create our own editorials, which is, what like, why they started creating content in a way that I think was a bit of a pioneer in the direct-to-consumer online market where people weren't really creating their own photo shoots like they were. I mean, some were, but I couldn't see many other brands in Australia that were doing it in that way uh, but it's all still important it all goes hand in hand and PR is like we have a full-time PR manager who handles those press relationships and those are very important to us to tell the brand's story but yeah there isn't as much of a focus as like making sure this dress gets in that long lead magazine. Um, how do you source your influences? I think a lot of people are looking at influencer marketing moving forward from here. How do you um, choose the right people for Spell? Oh, <laughs> I mean. Is, is there a magic equation? Really, it's just like who feels right for the brand. So it's not really about following um, even engagement. I mean, I don't even check that. It's just like does their aesthetic align with ours or their personal message align with ours? And, you know, interestingly enough, I, you know, did a lot of research around the United States when we were looking at growth there and, we um, worked with a platform who sort of helped marry us up with some influencers and they suggested people who they were like, these people have good sell-through. And when I would look at their profile, I was like, oh, yeah, okay, like maybe I would work with them, maybe I wouldn't, like if they hadn't pitched them to me. But then when those people did wear spell, they they felt spell. So that, that was a learning curve to like see that like really people can sort of like come into the brand even though it's not their usual style and still make it look amazing. But really, I think it's that that I guess that their aesthetic and their persona feels aligned with us, which in a way, if I think about our customers and what they would expect of like a spell uh, ambassador, there's sort of like a wholesomeness to it and like I guess a care for sustainability and that kind of thing. It's not necessarily like, I don't know, I guess without using like it's such an overused word, but there's like an authenticity to that girl, if that makes sense. It's, it's one of the things that people come to us a lot and say, mm-hmm. oh, I want an influencer. I want someone who's going to be able to sell my product. But does it have to be someone with 1.3 million followers? Absolutely not. <laughs> I mean, being a micro-influencer myself, I know that that's not true. Um, but <laughs> uh, no, definitely nothing like aesthetically about hair or what they look like. Really, number one is that do they do good content? That's all. But I guess because like Spell is probably a little bit different to some other brands, if they're looking to grow their following or grow their presence, then they might need somebody who's going to provide exposure for them. But for us, it's about getting good content as much as it is for them promoting it on their own channel, if that makes sense. So So you reuse you reuse the content? Yeah, usually. Um, like if we think it's good photo and we have like the pieces in stock, we usually try and repost it. So really like because content is everything and storytelling is everything to us as a brand, what they create that we're able to repost is just as important as the reach that they have. Um, When it comes to marketing in the United States, however, we were doing some brand awareness there. Um, 
before COVID, it was like our main goal was to like help grow in the States, but we've sort of like been reassessing that at the moment. But yeah, they like looking at influencers who had a broader reach and who could provide us brand awareness was important. So it was a little bit of a flip on what we were used to. However, the content that they create and the quality of content was still at the forefront of that. Like I would never be booking, um, I guess, somebody who just does mirror selfies, for example, which is fine. But like we want something. Well, I love people who do mirror selfies as well. They actually engage really well. But if you know what I mean, somebody <laughs> who um, has yeah. a really big following but maybe their following is like 98% men because it's mainly them on the beach in a bikini or mirror selfies in a bikini, that's not necessarily going to translate as somebody good for us. I've, I've seen you've used Christine McPherson a few times and also Tezza. I have the Tezza app on my phone. <laughs> it's um, the best. It's the best. <laughs> it's the best. It's the best. So they're often actually quite business savvy or very much aligned to a certain value or a fashion aesthetic. And um, I do really enjoy how Spell always uh, embeds those values into its business model. One of the things I think you also do well is is collaborative marketing and working with other products and other businesses. One of the ones I know that you've done is Subpod and you've got very aligned brand values about sustainability and recycling. Yes. How do those kind of relationships come about? They all come about really different ways. So like when we're doing like a a product collaboration, it's always different depending on each brand. We have an exciting one coming really soon. Uh, With Subpod, I'm pretty sure that the man who owns it just approached us or um, I don't know if the relationship started with Lucy, who is my direct colleague, a brand experience manager, and then she sort of chatted to Lizzie and like, we should do this, and then it kind of came from there. Can you tell us how these values link to the company's story? I know during the bushfires you did a big fundraiser. Maybe tell us a little bit about that because that was pretty successful. Uh, it was mind-blowing <laughs> and probably like I would say one of my proudest moments for working at Spell, not that it like came from me whatsoever, but I just mean like as an employee to represent a brand that did what they did was a very proud moment. Uh, so basically at the beginning of January last year, obviously most people listening would know that Australia had some really devastating bushfires which um, were just awful. And there was a time, I think it was like maybe January 6th or something like this. It was like the last weekend of what's usually the Australian holidays before people go back to work. So um, the fire just really ramped up at that time and it just felt like a weird thing to go on social media and post anything normally. Like it was just like all about the fires. And we started getting our community going, what are you doing? You know, what are you doing about this? And we, myself and Lizzie, had been talking all weekend about what we want to do. So we'd already donated about... I think $20,000 at that point because the bushfires had started in September. Um, But we just wanted to do something that felt right and real and it was over that weekend that a lot of brands had been doing like a percentage of sales, which was so amazing. Like some of the smaller brands that we know like in Stockers had donated so much money like and would would have not been that viable for their business. Um, And we were just watching going, hey, what are we going to do? And we had to wait until we got into the office because I guess when you're not as small, you have to sort of cut through some red tape and make sure that it's all above board and allowed. But Lizzie came up with an idea to create a unicorn tears collection, which is a sort of community coined term around pieces that are rare or that our customers find as their most special piece and that they're hunting for. Um, because a lot of people are always trying to find secondhand spell of a piece that they weren't able to get or they're new to the brand and they discover this old piece and they can't find it. So what we did was we put a vote to our customer base and said, what pieces do you want us to recreate? And we're going to donate 100% of profits to these pieces from a pre-sale and people will get it in July. So this was in January, so it was a six-month wait um they told us what they wanted we had to go back to our production team and see what was actually possible obviously like picking like if there was one thing that was popular from one fabric we'd be able to make some other things from the same fabric because once it's printed you want to be able to use it and then um yeah we came together with this list and we put it up for pre-sale and then the profits ended up being I think I'm going to say this right $967,833. Amazing. Um, after Extraordinary. Sale, which was 
way above anything we ever expected, I guess, because first of all, spell is so limited, so we have no idea how many sales we would make after a piece sold out, if that makes sense. (laughs) So I'd just say if we have, you know, I'm just going to say this in smaller numbers, but like we had 10 of a dress, but people were going to buy 100 of a dress, we'd never know because 10 was it. Um, Not that it's those numbers, but, you know, just to make it simple. Um, So we didn't know. And then I think on top of that, because people were like willing to make a donation to get a dress, they were like more generous or more abundant in what they were buying than they normally would be as well. So it was like massive. <laughs> That's uh, it's extraordinary. A, it's a good, yeah, it's a good excuse too. You, you, you're doing a donation, it's charity, and I get to wear a nice pretty spell dress. Totally. And people <laughs> say they're like super proud to wear their piece around because they know what it did. So we ended up splitting the funds with a, a few different organisations in the end. So it was, um, I could be wrong about this because obviously it was a little while ago, but Red Cross salvos because I think we'd already donated to St Vincent's or maybe it was the opposite way around we definitely donated to all three at some point and then wires and then RFS and then I think we did one to the South Australian fire service as well. So it's interesting because some businesses um, will try something like this but it doesn't necessarily work why do you think it worked for you? Because people had been asking us to recut these pieces for years. So we've done two Unicorn Tears collections previous to this time, um, but we hadn't done one in about, I think we did one in 2017 and 2018, so this was 2020. So it been two years. felt like longer than that. Maybe it was 2016 and 17. I can't remember exactly. But we hadn't done it in either one or two years. So... Um, definitely that that people have been requesting these pieces and then like strangely it felt like there'd be new people to the community who didn't know what these pieces were but they just liked them and then yeah I think that people were really like willing to spend for this charity moment because they wanted to do something can be part of a change. And what did it do for your business too in terms of your workplace and your staff as well? It's a really hard one uh, and Lizzie and I have talked about this on our podcast because Obviously, we're all super proud and really blown away by the result. But what happened after that was COVID hit, say, well, almost this time last year. And we weren't sure what was going to happen with our collections or anything. And what we realised was, okay, we've just given away almost a million dollars of profit, which is amazing. However, our team still have to work on this for the next four months. So, um, like, obviously profits means we've covered, like, the cost to the business, but, like, I don't think that they had factored in the team time, if that makes sense. So we had, like, people, like, working on something that wasn't bringing money to the business and then we had, like, stretched out our collections as a strategy to make sure that we're able to get through that period. So it was, like, an awesome thing, but then obviously after the fact it kind of felt a little bit stressful. (laughs) Um, But it was all fine. Yeah, also yeah. supply chain and making sure that you can source all those things, particularly if you didn't have any control of the supply chain. As you mentioned, it wasn't just 10 items, it was whatever they order. So really heading into the unknown there. Totally. Um, and like obviously at that point in time, because um, COVID had started in China, not near anywhere we produce, but a lot of those garments are produced out of there. We didn't know if they were going to shut down, we weren't going to be able to deliver and we'd already donated all of the money so it was like a very complicated time and then the other thing was that we didn't know JobKeeper was going to happen for a little bit as well so we didn't know that some people would lose their jobs and were like well shit I can't afford this $300 dress anymore so they were going to return it so at the time we like sent out the orders we were worried that we would end up with a lot more stock than we were ever used to um, being returned to us and then we would have an inventory problem. It went How well. did that go? It was barely yeah. returned. Anything that was returned was snapped up immediately on the website. It's like people who hadn't got it at the time were like really interested in it still. So we were really lucky that most people either like they just wanted their dress and were super happy with it because they'd been waiting six months or um, if they didn't, it was snapped up super quick. So it was no problem at all. But obviously we were like thinking the worst case scenario, which gladly didn't happen. <laughs> and what did you do with your marketing and your PR through COVID? So... Almost a year ago, I was at a conference down in Melbourne for, um, it's called the Fashion Summit at Melbourne's Fashion Week, the VAMP one. And 
everything sort of started happening with Corona and then they ended up cancelling the final event because they're like, things are going to start going into lockdown. And I was like sitting there in this conference and I was like in my mind going, what is going to happen when we all go into lockdown and what am I going to do marketing wise? And I don't know why I said this gut feeling. I was like, everyone's going to go live on Instagram. It's definitely going to be the thing because we're all going to be at home and we want to watch TV, but we'll be watching this. So I like messaged um, Lizzie. She was back in bar and I was like, we have to do like a live series, like a little show every single day. So within the week, so like I think by would have been like what the 13th, the 20th of March, we were up and running with a live program, which I think from what I could tell, I could be wrong because I don't follow every single brand, but we were one of the first brands to do that. Um, and then obviously it became like the biggest trend at that time is to see like a live series of different things. So we sort of got our community in, we're doing cooking, styling, you know, it was a way for us to be able to do little discounts here and there um, at a time because we don't really discount that much as a brand, um, you know, to get stock moving if we needed to and like give back to the community and really just like engage with people while things were so uncertain. So that was sort of the beginning of our marketing plan around that lockdown and we did it for 10 weeks. Wow, uh, which was a long was, time. Oh, it was a long time. <laughs> it was really like fronted by <laughs> a lot myself. Of content. And yeah, um, lucky we were like reliant on like other people to sort of take over as well. But myself and Lucy, who's our brain experience manager, sort of did most of the episodes. So every day she'd have to clear out her roommates from her kitchen to do cooking things. And then I would have to be like, shut up to my husband. And if you're coming back from your run, make sure you enter through the back door because I don't want people to like hear you coming in on the live. It's like this whole thing. Sounds like a podcast. Sounds like yeah. a podcast. <laughs> um, yeah. And I have to say my guilty pleasure, um, I think during that time so, and and before that even, you were start, you started doing the live fashion shows, the live cat, cat walks. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I found those were so great because you really could see different, um, you know, body type, sizes, height, shapes, and rather than seeing it in a catalogue, you could see it 3D and moving. Um, and it definitely gave me more confidence when I was making a purchase. So you've obviously got that ability to predict the future in terms of trends. Do you have any um, hot tips or ideas of what might be coming up? Oh, well, I always call um, my boss Lizzie uh we call her a clairvoyant or a psychic because she seems to know things before they happen. I don't know how, but uh, definitely I think like a lot of what's happened with Spell has been her gut instinct and somehow she's able to see into the future. I don't know if I have that as much as her. I don't really believe in that. But um, I think that the thing with the like the live session and getting onto that a little bit early is just really thinking about what is going to happen and putting yourself into the situation. What do I think is next? I mean, really for us, we're just sort of focusing on thinking about other platforms. Like obviously TikTok became a big thing. I've been sort of obsessed with learning about TikTok prior to uh, lockdown and when COVID hit as well and like really learning about what's going to happen. And we had some younger people in the team and one of them's like an avid YouTuber and I was like, TikTok's the next thing, like start getting onto it, start learning about it. I was listening to all these podcasts and it was already a thing but like realising what a brand could do on it and that's still, we started focusing on that during lockdown as well and grew our following to almost 5,000 but then over the last few months I've sort of dropped the ball on it a bit because we haven't had the resources to do it and it really takes a lot of time and energy to like sit there and think about those trends but I do think it's like a super important platform to think about what your brand voice and strategy is. And then right now um, Lizzie's obsessed with Clubhouse and wants to really get into that. So I'm still new on that. But I think there's definitely a feeling like that real, I don't know, it's like taking it away from like a central, I don't know, content as opposed like, you know, Clubhouse is like taking it away that you go to what you're interested in and you take part in these rooms. I don't know if you know how it works. Yeah. yeah I think yeah. I actually just followed you the other day. I saw you pop up and um it's actually really an exciting space and it would be interesting for a fashion label um, how you create a presence there because the visual element is completely absent. So it's conversations and storytelling, really. That's what totally. you Totally. Well, it's kind of like having a podcast, right, and then people can sort of interrupt you, which I feel like our community already seems to be on board and in there. Uh, we just got to work it out how it will work. It's not really meant for brands. It's meant for people. 
but Lizzie's sort of on there and getting into it. So, I mean, definitely her is somebody who has taken part in a lot of um, speaking gigs and also has a podcast. It's definitely her kind of platform. I find it hard because, yes, it's not visual. So it's like how does this benefit your brand when it comes to sales or what what's that purpose? So that's something that we need to work on and strategize right now. <laughs> And, and also just the time and with, um, you know, we all know what happened um, with Facebook and news outlets in Australia and it just goes to show that if you build your building on sand, you're putting yourself <laughs> at risk. So I, I love that um, Spell really takes a holistic approach and I think as a marketing manager, you're not really a marketing manager. You're almost like two IC to the founder in some ways. Yes. Um, with how embedded you are and how passionate you are about the brand. Um, absolute inspiration. I'm sure there's a lot of people that um, would want to be like you, Mel. And I did hear through the grapevine, I don't know if this is a true story, so you can um, debunk it if I'm incorrect, but I did hear from someone that you were discovered while you were working um, doing marketing at a local shopping centre. Is that right? I love how you say discovered. Discovered. <laughs> and had <laughs> uh, a model. Woo! Um, I, mean, I, feel like, I feel like you're such talent though. Seriously. I mean oh, I've, I've watched Jeez. your I've watched your work and you know, you work with other brands as well, not just spell. And like you said, you do a bit of micro influencing. So you're much more than a marketing manager, I think. Oh, thanks. Jeez, I'm blushing. Uh, <laughs> no, so I wasn't discovered. <laughs> I hustled. Um, so I was working. Yeah, I was working full-time as the marketing manager at Lismore Shopping Square and they were like an awesome team and I had, you know, a boss that was super supportive and would say similar things to what you just said and similar things to what Lizzie would say to me now, which is really awesome. Um, but my my love and interest always laid in fashion. So my plan was working at Lismore, my husband and I, who wasn't my husband at the time but my boyfriend at the time, um, bought a house together we were going to renovate it and we we're going to move to Sydney because I needed to get that dream fashion job whatever the hell that would be um I had my blog on the side which was called the chubby fashionista but it didn't really feature me it was me taking photos of different people so I would like just find amateur models or friends and I would shoot them on the weekends in stuff that I would find like vintage or whatever and just style them so I sort of started becoming a photographer and the way I met Lizzie and Spelly and like the Spell crew was that uh, I'd been invited to write, because I was also a journalist before I worked at the Square, I was invited to write some music reviews for Falls Festival, the very first Falls Festival that was held I in Byron Bay. I didn't know that, that you started off as a journo. Very interesting. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, yeah, this woman called Kira Pendergast, who I always say, you're the reason I got this job. Um I don't know how she found me. I think she'd found my blog or something. I don't know. And she invited me to come do some reviews um, of the music stuff. So the first festival I went to, I just went as a writer. And the next one I was like, oh, hey, can I bring my camera along and shoot like people at the festival for you? So I came and did Blues Fest for her. And during that festival, Spell reposted a bunch of my photos saying, love these photos by Mel Pereira of people at the festival because Lizzie's husband, Johnny, was working with Kira. It was at Common Ground Byron Bay, it was called at the time. So basically the next festival, which was Splendour in the Grass, Lizzie contacted me directly and was like, oh, hey, um, do you want to shoot, like are you going to Splendour and do you want to shoot photos for Spell that we can put on the blog? And I was like, yeah, like, and they were like, oh, we don't really have much budget. And I was like, I just want this top. There was this top that I really, really wanted. I'd seen in their campaign with Rachel Rutt. And I tried to get my mum to like replicate it because it kind of looked like curtain lace <laughs> and she, oh. <laughs> it was a complete failure. It didn't work, the replica, because I think the top was like 270 bucks and I was like, I can't afford this top. Um, so I was like, yeah, I'll do it for a top. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> so I ended up shooting the festival for them. I was still there with Common Ground as well, but I, I shot the Spell Girls and I like understood who was wearing what and the brands. I don't know how, but I did pulled up lots of girls, got a photo that went viral of this model called Annalise McLaughlin. Lizzie and I had clicked from there. Like we could tell that we totally understood what was like the good outfits and blah, blah, blah. And then I had just sort of kept working with Spell and random stuff between then. Like so I'd gone to Fashion Week and shot a couple of influences for them. I um, shot a couple of little content pieces. To this point I still hadn't met Lizzie in person. And then it was... I'd just done Falls Festival. It was like the Christmas break. 
And I just texted her and was like, you know, if there's ever any jobs going, let me know. Because at that point I'd realised like as much as I loved my job at the shopping centre, I just needed to do something in fashion and like a brand that really ignited that fire for me. And I was like, I'll go work as anything. I didn't really care. I'll get my foot in the door and work my way up. (laughs) But the same day I texted her, um, the girl who was doing the role at the time was PR slash wholesale, which was getting replaced by two wholesale people and she was about to move into the marketing like full-time role because the company was just expanding so fast at that point in time she'd resigned. Um, So it was kind of like this kismet moment and Liz was like, oh, it's a sign, but I still went through the regular process, which was actually quite a long process of going for the job and everything like that and ended up being successful. So that's the story. I guess like I had hunted them in a way. <laughs> oh, okay. I feel like we've I feel like we've had a myth debunked for me because um, <laughs> there's so many and elements jo- and what a what a perfect match. Yeah. And what about what about journalism? I mean, how does that help you in your role now? Because a lot of people think, oh, I can't cross over from journalism into PR and marketing. You know, are my skills going to be reflected in my PR job? Do you think that is really helpful to you oh yeah being able to write a story and work out what's important is like so important to this I mean it's important for the PR element so like myself and my um, PR manager like she studied more the PR world but like us knowing what a journalist would want so that's that side so like I understand from a pitching side but just being able to write basic copy to be honest like I don't think that writing is like my super strength even though I did it I worked for a community newspaper, which is now um, shut down because a lot of the newspapers got shut down, um, that really the stories were community-based. So in a way, I feel like that element helped inform how I am with the Spell community and really understand the community that I still live in, which is Lismore. So, yeah, I mean, any skill, like working in, like I worked in retail for so many years before I did anything while I was at uni, before I became a journalist. And while I was a journalist, I still worked at Sports Girl. And so that you, stuff was super yeah, informative. You studied journalism at uni. What was the what was the degree that you did? I did a bachelor of media, minoring in marketing. So my majors were digital video, so video editing, I guess, and filming, which I hate. Um, <laughs> and then <laughs> and then journalism, which I kind of just fell into. I don't know why I just picked it because it was there. And then uh, I did a minor in marketing, which wasn't even offered in that degree. I just sort of asked them, can I do a little bit of marketing? I don't know why. I didn't know if I even liked marketing. I just thought it would be good. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, you were a bit of a seer, really, because that um, multi-platform approach, and it's really where journalism is heading as well. You've got these one-person bands that are going in with their their camera, their shooting. I mean, even as a PR person these days, I'm rocking up to picture opportunities and presses with a camera, making sure that I'm taking those behind the scene shots as well. And part of your campaign too is around the whole behind the scenes process. And that's what draws the community in and, you know, makes everyone feel part of the story. Yeah, I hope so. We love opening that little door. I mean, there's only a certain... uh, way that we can open it like not fully because it's something that our community beg us for like they want to see more of the collections more far in advance and they want to be part of all this stuff but unfortunately because we do get counterfeited a lot we have to be pretty tight on releasing uh, and strict on how we release our imagery and when uh, just so that we can protect that uh, so it's always a hard one because when we do sell out of product quickly, people are like, please pre-sale it. And we're like, we can't. We can't like show you six months in advance the product because someone will probably put it into works faster than us because they have a supply chain that they push harder or that will do it, you know. Um, but, yeah, we, we love to show that BTS yes, mm. when and, we can. And I do remember the Vogue feature um, with Spell. I don't know what year it was. It was a few years ago. It was so refreshing to see an independent homegrown um, label splash these pages. What impact did that have on Spell Designs as a brand that maybe you couldn't achieve just through social media? I think it's like a coup when you get into like a big title like Vogue. Um, I think now we probably have had a feature in most of the titles, like obviously ones that have uh, since shut but even the ones that are still going and, like, really good ones. Like I think Marie Claire featured us last year and it was quite substantial around our sustainability journey. I don't know. I think, like, really 
it just legit legitimizes or feels like you know you're being recognized in a certain way which I think is nice for a brand based in Byron we do sometimes feel quite out of the loop of the Sydney brand scene so oh, are you though are you really you've got all the Hemsworths there's so much <laughs> totally Byron not, I'm not out of loop in that way yeah no definitely not when it comes to like you know celebrities and people coming to our store and all that kind of stuff but more like um recognize the serious fashion brand in the fashion industry because we're in Byron and they just think of us as a small hippie brand and when they go oh we've got like you know 60 women they're like what they don't realize like what it is or our fanfare which who cares really but like it can be frustrating at times if you're being compared to other brands that may be smaller which size doesn't matter but you know it's kind of this thing people just expect that you're a little little brand yeah you really did a master class a few years ago around how to manage a crisis in real time you had an issue with I think it was one of the garments that came out faulty but it wasn't so much what had happened like where you went wrong it was how you then made it better can you talk us through the way that you had those very open conversations with your community some mm-hmm. some who weren't actually happy at the time too. Yeah. Are you referring? It was like years and years ago, like a blue sky yes. wrap dress. Yeah. yeah. Like, no, no, oh, no, the no. blue skies wrap dress. This this one was a sore point for me because that photo shoot, which was shot in Paris with Sarah L- Ellen, was my first overseas production. So, like, that coming out was so meaningful Aww. to me and that film was, like, so beautiful to this day. It's probably one of my favourite campaign films shot by an American uh, filmmaker called Paul DeLuna. Anyway. So when that came out, I was like, yay, this shit's so beautiful. And the film had like so many views on YouTube. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then this dress came out and like we were tested, but I don't know why this one didn't get wear tested, but something happened and like I'd worn it to work, a couple of people didn't want it to work and I'd had this basket bag and it was just sort of like shredding the fabric a little bit. To be honest, I feel like a lot of brands would just release this dress and be like, it's delicate, too bad. Um, but what had happened was we changed things because we were at the beginning of our sustainability journey even back then. So that was, it would have been, uh, I guess, early 2017. Um, we had digitally printed the fabric instead of printing it the traditional way, which saves heaps of water. So it's like we didn't know like the integrity of the fabric was going to be different and, yeah, we decided to recall the dress. Customers, like it sold out, customers could choose to keep it at 50% and we'd refund them 50% or they could send it back for a full refund. Then we ended up recutting the dress in the, like, fabrication we were used to. Yeah, wow, and it was, it, it was the social media, the conversations where the founders actually got on and conversed directly and in a very open open way you know it wasn't it wasn't a carefully crafted response that's yeah that was amazing and I think it built even more trust somehow in your brand and your community Mm, definitely and like that expectation of transparency definitely begun there and never ended uh, and that's something that we know because we have so many um, community members that actually speak to each other because there's a quite a big vibrant buy, swap, sell community of Spell and then we have our own Facebook group. Um, we know that people discuss things so basically, not that we would want to, but if we wanted to fly under the radar about a fault on something, it's probably not going to fly because people who buy it would tell each other. <laughs> um, but, yeah, like that that's the thing. This obviously hadn't even been released. People hadn't even received their packages yet. It's just like we started doing some testing once we realised there was this fault and like, well, we can't we can't do this. Um, we don't want that. We don't want to wait until people decide to return it, if that makes sense, if it was going to be a fault with every single style. And, yeah, there was just not worth the risk for us in terms of trust. Thank you so much, Mel, for your time. We know you're so busy and we really appreciate it. And it's just been fantastic having you on the show and hearing what it's like to work behind the scenes for one of Australia's most iconic lifestyle brands. So thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, amazing, Mel. Thank thank you. I loved hearing all that too because, like I said, I'm always watching you going, you're amazing. And um, when I did have my other brand, I definitely, like, looked up to you guys as online mentors. Thank you so much. I'm not going to be able to get out of the room with my head being this big after you guys. At the start of the show, we promised we would tell you about the industry term collaboration or collab. 
a collab is a great PR tool that complements and enhances your social media and digital marketing activities. An ideal collaboration would be one between two non-competing but like-minded brands. So typically a collab is an event, promotion or a photo shoot that involves more than one brand or individual that leads to mutual benefits. So for example, Mel talked about SubPod, which is the composting system. So given that Spell Designs has such a strong mandate to act locally and sustainably, this was a perfect collab for them. SubPod doesn't sell clothes and Spell doesn't sell composting systems, but it's likely that the people who shop at Spell might also want to improve their carbon footprint or participate in the circular economy. So by working together in collaboration, Subpod can slide into Spell's socials and Spell can slide into Subpods. So collaborating isn't only about partnering with brands with huge followings, but it's also about creating connections with other businesses that you admire and share similar values with. And a collab could be non-paid, it could be in kind, or it could be paid. It's also a great way to network and Really confident brands don't even mind partnering with other brands that are in the same industry. In fact, Spell often does shout-outs to other emerging indie fashion brands and it also, all this does is spread the love. In fact, Jo, I know know two women who work in the same industry, Mm -hmm. in the same market, Mm -hmm. and yet They've collaborated not only to share their intellectual property, but also their contacts. Hmm. Can you think who they might be? Oh, could it be you and me from its PR darlings? Hmm. I knew you were smart. (laughs) (laughs) In all seriousness, though, collaborations really do broaden your support network and you can exchange ideas, learnings and even workloads, which has been wonderful um, as part of this relationship too, Gria. I've really appreciated all of that from you. Uh, It goes both ways, as any good collaboration should. So the beauty of the collab is that brands can cross-promote to incentivise online sales without putting their own items on sale. For instance, a candle company might do a collaboration with a bath soap company in the lead-up, say, to Valentine's Day or Mother's Day. The candle company could then offer a complimentary bath soak with every order over a certain amount and vice versa for the bath soap company. And then you can promote this via your social media channels. You know, it's e-newsletters and paid ad campaigns to create this urgency to purchase without pulling out the old, you know, 20% off tactic, which sometimes really can diminish the perceived value of your goods as well. The possibilities are endless, but always remember to tag your fellow collaborators into any social media posts and be sure to acknowledge their contributions. Good manners go a really long way when it comes to successful collaborations and generosity is part of this. Well, thank you so much for tuning in again to its PR Darlings. We love connecting with our listeners, so please do all the things, subscribe, follow, review. We're on all the socials. I'm Jo Stone from Sticks and Stones PR. And I'm Greg Finn from Forward Communications. See you in two weeks.